So it's great to be back with you. And uh, you guys have heard a lot of my favorite sermons over the last 10 years or so when I have the privilege of coming back. So I want to go back to another, uh, actually is a favorite book. Uh, when I was pastoring in Penyan, I had the privilege for about three months or so preaching through the Old Testament book of Malachi. And uh, the Lord's been kind of showing me in recent, uh, last couple of years actually, that my own ministry exposition-wise needs to be balanced a little bit better because my training, my background, my teaching is primarily New Testament. I'm trying to balance that out with going back to the Old Testament because we really don't understand, although the, the New Testament is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament anticipated, we really don't understand the significance of the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. And when we get into the Old Testament, we find, for me, I'm finding that there are a lot of tremendous nuggets of truth that for many of us as believers lie buried because we hardly ever go to the Old Testament. So that's uh, this last year in our uh, fellowship group in, in uh, California, in the church, my church in California, uh, we decided to do a study on Christ in the Old Testament. And so this is um, uh, related to that a little bit. It's a little different than what we actually did in the study. But I want to take you to Malachi chapter 1 this morning. And uh, Hod read for us earlier um, uh, the entire first chapter, which gives you a little bit of a sense of the dynamic of the book of Malachi. Malachi is one of the uh, so-called minor prophets, uh, kind of a misleading title for the prophets because they weren't minor. Um, minor as opposed to the major prophets is a title that's given because the prophecies of those 13 last books in the Old Testament, which actually in Hebrew were one book, 12 actually, the 12, um, one book in Hebrew, which is why there's a different number of books in the Old Testament canon, Hebrew canon, than there are in the English canon, but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, because 12 of them are considered this one book. And the reason why we call them the minor prophets is because their messages tend to be shorter, which I guess I should take a lesson from that, that some preachers do <laughs> preach shorter messages. But I ain't one of them. I'm not only horizontally gifted, I'm terminally challenged uh, when it comes to preaching. Um, but... Uh, uh, this book is one of the is, is unique among even those minor prophets in a number of ways. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of a uh, this, uh, brief introduction to the way the book is set up, and I don't want to set the historical setting of it because I think understanding the historical setting will highlight the significance of the message of Malachi, particularly the message of Malachi for us today, who are living 2,500 years later, give or take a century and are in a completely different context, a completely different culture. Malachi is an interesting book among the prophets in that really what you have in the book of Malachi is very, very little of what Malachi himself says. Most of the other prophets will tell you, uh, will give you the words that God had given them to preach to the other nations. And so uh, the other prophets have a number of statements where they would say, thus says the Lord, and then they would begin their message. And the thus says the Lord dynamic is still present in Malachi, but it's very different in this regard. Malachi we're introduced to in verse 1, but we don't know anything about Malachi. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know where he lived. We don't know what his profession was before God made him a prophet. In fact, some people believe that Malachi was simply a title for the, an anonymous prophet because the word, the name Malachi means my messenger. That's what it means. But you don't have the name Malachi showing up anywhere else in the book after the first verse. I personally believe that Malachi was the name of the person who wrote the book, that it was not merely a title for him, but that was his name because prophets, there was no such thing in the Old Testament economy of an anonymous writing prophet. They wrote and they put their names on their book as part of the mark of authentication of their books. But what's significant about Malachi is you have 55 verses in this little book of Malachi, 47 of those verses, over 80% of the book, 
reproduce a conversation that takes place between God and his people. Basically, Malachi is about a discussion that goes on between God and the people of Israel in this context. And the way it works is this way. You have God repeating back to the people a charge, some kind of a charge that they have raised against him. God takes up the charge, and then God in grace and mercy condescends to answer that charge. So you have countercharge, a charge, God repeats it, and then he gives his answer to it. And then you have the book basically built around this dialogue that exists between God and his people. And that's a very important point to remember when we start to come to understanding the message of the book of Malachi as a whole. Because Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets to be written. The date that most scholars attach to the book is around 400 B.C. Uh, If that is true, there are a couple things that are very significant. Number one, this is after Israel had been in the land of captivity for 70 years. They had been brought back to the land about 130 years before Malachi writes this prophecy. If you remember the story about how Cyrus issued the decree that Israel would return and go back to the land, and then they rebuilt the temple, Ezra, uh, opening chapters of Ezra record the rebuilding of the temple. And as you remember, when that temple got rebuilt, there were a number of people who were alive who saw the glory of the older temple, Solomon's temple, and they wept because this was a far cry from the glory of the previous temple. But they were back in the land. They were back in the land that God had promised to them. And God had, true to his word through Jeremiah, God had restored them back to the position of restoration in their, in their land after the 70-year captivity. A number of years pass, Israel becomes complacent, and so God sends Ezra, another return under Ezra, about 75 years after the first return, Ezra brings a group back and teaches the law of God. In fact, Ezra trains up a whole generation of expositors that in Nehemiah 8 are the ones that are teaching the nation as a whole, and they're explaining and giving the understanding of the text, and people finally are coming back to a point of biblical literacy once again. Ezra, in that regard, is a huge model for those of us who would who would pursue the preaching and the teaching of God's word the importance of building a biblical foundation in the lives of those that you minister to but this had been about 50 years earlier Ezra's passed off the scene Nehemiah by this point had passed off the scene and Israel finds themselves in very much of a plateau position they can look back and they can see God's amazing intervention in their lives and in their uh, uh, circumstances in amazing ways. They can look back to the Exodus under, under Moses where he brought the people out of Egypt with amazing signs and wonders. God's raising up the nation of Israel. God giving them uh, a few great kings and then several not so great kings but some, some great pinnacles of People they could look back to, people like David and people like Solomon and others that they could look back to as part of the glory of Israel. And then even when they were taken into captivity as a result of their own rebellion and idolatry, God, as I'd already mentioned, has brought them back. These were all things that had happened in the past. And yet it would be 400 years from the writing of this book before God would directly intervene in human history again, this time with the sending of Jesus Christ. So Israel very much is in a position where they're looking back to amazing things that God had done in the past, and they're anticipating for those that were studying their Old Testaments and knew all of the messianic expectation that the Old Testament pointed to, they're anticipating that Jesus is going to come, but they don't know when. They would like Him to come right now. 
They would like him to fulfill everything that he had promised and everything that he said he would do, they would like him to do. But that would still be 400 years in the future. So Israel is kind of caught in this time warp, as it were, where they're looking back to great things God had done in the past and anticipating great things that would come in the future, but not seeing the fulfillment of them yet. In fact, none of the people that were the original readers of Malachi would live to see the next great stage in Israel's history and world history with Jesus coming on the scene. That dynamic is where I suggest is a parallel with us. Here we are in 21st century America, 2,500 years or so after Malachi wrote those original words. We're looking back. We see amazing things that God has done in world history. We already mentioned a bunch of them that Israel saw, but we can add to that. Jesus Christ has come. He has, he has uh, taken upon himself the sins of the world. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. He ascended. He went back to heaven. The church was born. And then we can look back at amazing things within church history even that have happened, where God breaks through in things like the Reformation, or the Great Awakening, or the Second Great Awakening. All things in our past. And we're looking forward, as the Apostle John did when he closed the book of Revelation, he says, even so what? Come, Lord Jesus. And Christians through the ages have been echoing that cry for 2,000 years since, and he hasn't come. Even in the first century, people... Uh, false teachers were mocking the idea of Jesus' second coming. Where's the promise of his coming? And we have people today that mock the idea of the second coming on the one extreme by denying it altogether or by the other extreme uh, pulling the herald camping thing and setting dates repeatedly that continually get rebuffed because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. But I want to suggest to you that people who are caught in that time warp between looking back and seeing what God had done in the past and looking ahead, anticipating what God will do in the future, are in great danger of questioning the love of God. We tend, whether we realize it or not, sometimes we tend to fall into this trap of saying, if God really loved me, How come I'm not experiencing those great things in the past? Or how come Jesus isn't returning? How come He isn't coming back for me now? We're living in a culture in 21st century America that is becoming more and more and more anti-everything that is related to God and His Word and the Gospel and truth and everything else. Maybe it's just me, but I've sensed there have been a snowballing effect of this just within the last four or five years, if not even maybe a decade, of just increasing tremendous hostility to the point where we kind of wonder, God, what are you doing? This is exactly the position that the people in Malachi's day were in. Hence the significance of this prophecy. If I can give you the message of Malachi in one sentence, it would be this. Malachi is telling his readers to respond reverently to God's unchanging love. In a sentence, that's the message of the entire book of Malachi, and I could almost quit just with those words, but you know me, I'm not going to (laughs) quit. Respond reverently to God's unchanging love. And we have a hint of this in the very first words after the introduction to the book in Malachi, Malachi 1.1, after he introduces himself, uh, the oracle of the Lord through his prophet Malachi. And then in verse 2, you have these amazing words that open this up. I have loved you, says the Lord. Very first thing, I have loved you. This is what Malachi's focus is. He's trying to turn his people's attention from the extraordinary outbreaking of God into human history to the normative, 
There, there is something that is normal. Even if we live, if we live in times where we look back and see miraculous things that God does in history and wonder why these things aren't happening to us, there is something that is true of us that is true of His people in every single generation that doesn't change. And that is in a word, you are loved. That has never changed, is not changing, and will never change. That's Malachi's message. And he begins with these amazing words, I have loved you, says the Lord. And there's a lot packed into that. And I just want to spend a few minutes laying the background of what's behind those words because it makes the words that follow even more significant in our understanding of it. I read a book, oh, probably 20 years ago now, like all good books, it's out of print, but you can probably find it, uh, you know, uh, coming back into print or maybe it's even, even available electronically at this point. But Leon Morris wrote a book called Testaments of Love in which he was answering the liberal idea that the God of the Old Testament is an ogre, he's a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and doesn't do anything. You know, it's basically cutting God into pieces and misrepresenting him in both Testaments. And so Leon Morris writes this book to answer that particular charge, and he called it Testaments of Love. And one of his main points is that the love of God is even more starkly revealed in the Old Testament than in the New, because you have dozens and dozens and dozens of places where God reveals his love in the Old Testament. I want to give you four characteristics of God's love that would be kind of an overarching theology of love that you have that undergird these words. This comes from uh, basic Old Testament theology. Number one, four characteristics of God's love. Number one, the love of God is sovereign. The love of God is sovereign. I'm going to move down here if that's okay. Basically what that means is that uh, the sovereignty of God, that God is is king, he's in control of everything that happens in the universe. What this means is that there is nothing outside of God's person that forces him to love. God's sovereignty means that he is in control of everything, including his decision to love. There is nothing outside of him that forces him to love. That quality grows naturally and freely out of who he is by his nature and essence. John highlights this twice in 1 John chapter 4 when he says, He, the one who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. And then he'll repeat that again in verse 16. God cannot help but love. And many of the actions in Scripture And in many of the places where God's love is demonstrated in the Old Testament in particular, is followed by this comment that he does this for the sake of his own name. God loves because he is who he is. Number two, this is one of my favorite ones, and it's kind of related to number one. The love of God is unconditional. The love of God is unconditional. This is very, very important. There is nothing in us that merited God's love or His redemption. God loves us because He chose to set His love on us. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is probably one of the best expressions of this in terms of the nation of Israel. When God says to the nation of Israel, the Lord did not set His love on you because you were better or greater in number than the other nations. But the Lord loved you because He loved you. Does God love us? Absolutely. Why does God love us? Because He does. And ultimately, that's the only answer that you need to that question. But what becomes amazing is when you recognize who the objects of that love is, or are, I guess. That's us. Probably the best illustration, I think I've probably used this here before, you may have heard it before. If so, just pretend like you haven't heard it before. 
But D.A. Carson, in his little book that I brought with me here called The Difficult Doctrine of Love of God, uh, uses an illustration of a college couple that are walking alongside a beach. The semester struggles are over. They've passed all their finals. So they're walking along the beach and hand in hand, and the guy looks into the girl's eyes and says, I love you. I really do. What does he mean by that? Now, these days, it may mean that he just, you know, wants to get into bed with her. But let's assume that this guy has a modicum of Christian decency about him and that he means something like this. I adore you. Your smile transfixes me from a million miles away. You have a tremendous personality. You have a beautiful face. You have, a, uh, you know, we just have these great conversations when we get together and just goes right on down through the, the listing of things about her that he finds utterly attractive, and he says, I love you, I really do. What he most assuredly does not mean, and this is Carson's illustration, but I'm adapting it a little bit, what he most assuredly does not mean is something like this, I love you, I really do. Your hair could grease an 18-wheeler. Your nostrils are in separate zip codes. Your knees make a camel look elegant. You have nice, even teeth because number one, five, seven, and nine are all missing. Your personality makes Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun look like wimps. But I love you. I really do. Now let's change the scenario a little bit. God says... I love you. I really do. What does he mean by that? To look at some sanitized, psychologized pictures of the love of God that are presented to us today in popular Christian circles, it might mean something like this. God is saying, you have a wonderful personality. You have, you're so beautiful. You are so good to be with. I couldn't imagine not being without you. I love you. But when it comes right down to it, we are the people of the greasy hair, the nostrils and separate zip codes, the even teeth that, like all things, come out at night. Uh, We're the people, um, you know, we're the people with the Uh, you know, the ugly personality, and yet God looks at us and He says, I love you, I really do. And it isn't just that Israel was insignificant in terms of their persons. You have a group of people in the nation of Israel that are adamant in their rebellion against Him. One of the passages I thought about looking at that I uh, we don't have time to this morning because I've only got three and a half hours left and, you know, we, we, I really want to get on to what Malachi talks about here. But Ezekiel 16 provides an amazing picture in the Old Testament of Israel. And, and the picture that God uses of Israel in that, in that chapter is of a baby that was abandoned at birth and left in all of its, uh, you know, the, the birth matter into the ditch. And God comes along and finds the baby in the ditch and clothes it and raises it and loves it. And then the baby becomes a prostitute, abominates the love of God. Hosea chapter 11, which begins with that amazing statement, out of Egypt have I called my son, that was actually fulfilled in the life of Christ. God is recounting his love for the nation of Israel, and he comes down to verses 8 and 9 in that chapter, and he cries out, how can I give you up, O Israel? Uh, And then he lists the cities uh, in Sodom, the companion cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed back in Genesis 18. He says, "How how can I make you become like them? But then he says this, I am God, and because I am God, I will love you, and you will not become like those cities. God's love is amazing in that it's unconditional. God's choice to set his love 
on people. And for every one of us in this room, His choice is not because you and I were so great and so marvelous and so attractive. The exact opposite was the case. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later, when we were the enemies of God, that's even stronger than the word sinners. Enemies here highlights somebody who is fighting and absolutely resisting God. If it were possible, we would throw God out of heaven and we would destroy Him. But even when we were the enemies of God and hated Him and did not seek Him and wanted nothing to do with Him, God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. That's God's initiative. And God did it because He's God. That's the amazing thing. He did it not because of us. He did it in spite of us. But because of Himself. God's love is unconditional. Number three, the third characteristic. God's love is eternal. This starts to get us back close to the specific message Malachi was making, but I want to highlight another passage. Uh, Jeremiah 31, a verse that probably many of us know. You know what happens in Jeremiah 31? This is the New Covenant passage uh, that, be, that has the statement that God one day is going to take the heart of stony flesh out of His people and give them a new heart. 31-34. But we often forget how Jeremiah prefaces that whole prophecy. It's one of those high points within the book of Jeremiah as a whole. In fact, it's, it's uh, one of the one of the only primarily positive chapters within the book of Jeremiah. But he begins by making this statement, verse 3, The Lord of old has appeared unto me, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that doesn't end. And this is the point that Malachi is making because he begins the book with this statement, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then later on in the book, in chapter 3 and verse 6, I believe it is, uh, right after another one of those great Christ passages in the book of Malachi, Malachi makes this statement, quoting the Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's love it's part of his person, and God's unchangeableness is part of his person. You put those two things together, and you have a God whose love never changes. It never ends, even in spite of us sometimes. In fact, even in spite of us most of the time, if not virtually all the time, apart from the applied righteousness of Christ to our lives in redemption. And then number four, God's love is personal. God doesn't merely say, I love you, in words and not in action. Some of the pictures that God uses, in fact, I referenced earlier Hosea 11, where God describes his love for his people as a father training his child to walk. And so we come back to Malachi. When he makes the statement, I have loved you, you have these, at the very least, these four characteristics of love that are highlighted over and over and over again in the Old Testament. We haven't even highlighted some of the New Testament texts that, that speak of this. I've just been bringing in some Old Testament ones. That God's love is sovereign, it is unconditional, it is everlasting, and it is personal. This would have all been behind those Four words in our English language that open up Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. I have loved you. And look at the response these people have. If you read the end of verse 2, they, or the, the, the middle of verse 2 actually, he says, they say this, but you say, how have you loved us? Pretty amazing question, isn't it? Can you imagine how a wife would feel if she had just expressed her undying love for her husband and he responded back and said, prove it. 
you know, I, I don't see how you've loved me. That would crush her. Or if a husband, if a wife said that to her husband, it would crush him. How would you and I respond if somebody said that to us? Let me put it this way. If you had all the power in the universe at your disposal, how would you respond if somebody said that to you? I mean, to me, the amazing thing is that Malachi's prophecy doesn't end after the first part of verse 2. Okay, I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? New, you know, lightning out of heaven, crater where these people used to be, and we're done with the book. That's how I would respond. That's how I would be tempted to respond. And you would be too. Which is a good thing that I'm not God. But this highlights, amazingly, God's love because he doesn't respond and react the way we would in those circumstances. This is what I find so amazing about my God who loves and never changes in his love is he actually takes up their objection and he gives an answer to it. The very God who has no need to give an explanation or a reason for anything he does chooses to do so. And I find in this passage, and this is what I want to call our message this morning, evidences of God's unchanging love. Because Malachi here gives three of them in verses 2 through 5. And it's interesting because the way he does this is he goes back to the past and shows God's love in the past. He shows God's love to them in the present, and then he shows God's love to them in the future. The past expression of God's love, verses 2 and 3. The present expression of God's love, 3 and 4. And then the future expression of God's love, verse 5. And we'll talk about what each of those are in just a moment. But what's amazing is that by Malachi, or God actually in his response here, by going back to the past, looking into the present, and looking ahead to the future, is by the way he structures this passage, underscoring the message of the book. Respond reverently to God's what? Unchanging love. His everlasting love that continues even in the past, from the past, even into the present, even into the future. So three evidences of God's unchanging love. Number one, God's love in the past, in a word, election. Election. Let me read verse 2, the end of verse 2, and the first part here of verse 3. God's response was, was not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now it's very important when we read verses like this that we understand what love and hate mean in the scriptures, particularly when used in context like this. We tend to read personal animosity or personal affection into those words love and hate when we see them in Scripture. And there is a certain sense in which under certain contexts that would be true. But love, for one thing, love and hate are often used in comparative senses. For example, in one of the passages in Luke 14 where Jesus gives the mark of a true disciple, he says that the one who does not hate his father and mother cannot be my disciple. Now, can you imagine what, would be, what it would be like if people took that passage without considering the broader biblical context of it? You know, you have this, this teenage kid who mom and dad have been praying for for years that they would trust in faith in Christ. And finally, God breaks through and God redeems them, and the kid comes home from wherever that happens one day. He bursts into his house and he says, Guess what, mom and dad? I got saved. I hate your guts now. Something wrong with that picture. Because Jesus, especially when you consider it in all the context of the commands to honor your parents and so forth. So Jesus is not advocating hatred of parents. What he's saying is that your love for Christ is to be so supreme that all other loves pale in comparison. But there's also another sense in which love and hate are used in Scripture and this is a whole other sermon in itself, so I'm just going to give you the conclusion. Often love and hate are used in covenantal contexts. An illustration would be when a man walks down the aisle and gives 
his vows to love his wife, he is in essence saying, I'm going to hate all other women. Not hate in the sense of an animosity toward them, but the way that he underscores his unique, utter love for his wife is by having nothing even approaching that relationship with any other woman. Even though in a, in a broader sense, you know, uh, I, I love all women, especially ones that are sisters in Christ, but not in the same way that a man would love his wife. That's the covenantal idea here. And what God is saying, and he's actually going back to Genesis 25 with the account of God's choosing Jacob. And he says, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau, which basically is another way of saying in covenantal language, I have chosen, I have elected Jacob, and I have not elected Esau. Now there are a couple things about this election, this doctrine of election that you find from the Old Testament. Number one, we can highlight it this way, it was an exceptional election. You remember who Jacob and Esau were? What was their relationship to one another? They were brothers, and even something more unique, they were twins. And of the two, which one was the older? Esau. Who would you expect to have been chosen? Esau. But, no, it wasn't Esau, it was the younger one who was chosen. An exceptional election. And of course, in a, in a moment I want to reference, and we read one of them this morning in Ephesians 1, this great statement that shows that election was not merely to the nation of Israel. In love, Ephesians 1.4, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Jesus would say, you have not chosen me to His disciples, but I have what? I have chosen you. Paul would make the statement to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, knowing Brethren, beloved of God, your election. Notice you have there the linkage of election with God's love again in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. 1 Peter 1.2, uh, we've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And you have statement after statement after statement in the New Testament that tells us that we are here because God has chosen us. And all those other things that we said about the sovereignty of God expressing His love, and the unconditional nature of, God, uh, of God's love being expressed. All of this comes out of the fact that God loves us because He chose us. Why did God choose me? Why did God choose you? Part of the answer is, I don't know. But there's part of the answer I do know, and that is that it wasn't because of anything in me. It had nothing to do with how good I was, all those verses that we referenced earlier. You know, why is it that out of all of Susanna Wesley's, was it 19 children or 18? I can't never remember, but it's a few more than most people today have. But out of all Susanna Wesley's 19 children, why did God put his hand on two of them? to significantly impact their generation and generations beyond. John and Charles Wesley. John, uh, uh, the founder of the Methodist movement, but in many ways one of the key forces within the First Great Awakening in England and later on over here in America. And then Charles Wesley, who was an amazing hymn writer. Why those two? Out of all the children that Susanna Wesley had, in fact, one of John Wesley himself was nearly killed in a house fire when he was about seven years old and and was uh, you know, on a third-story uh, building or bedroom or something, and a neighbor uh, rushed into the house and I think threw him out of the window to safety. And forever after, John Wesley would cite that passage out of uh, Zechariah 3, Are you not a brand plucked from the fire? Because that's what he held on to. Why him? Why did God choose a fat German beer-making monk by the name of Martin Luther to bring about, or at least to, not to bring about, but to make the Reformation a worldwide movement. 
Most of you who know me for a long time know that I come from an unsaved home. My parents are not believers. There are four kids. God saved three of us. For a while it was only me. But I often wondered, why? Why me? It's exceptional that God would reach down and He would save someone like me. It's exceptional. It's an unmerited election. Paul in Romans 9 would refer back to the same passage that Malachi does here, and he makes the point that this election happened before either of those children did anything good or evil. It was completely not based on anything that they did, and it was an election to spiritual privilege. This is always what election is. Election in the New Testament in particular is positive. And so this is always the position of every child of God, an unmerited, exceptional election to spiritual privilege. And again, it's not just true for Israel as a nation, but for us as believers as well. God has chosen us. And so what Malachi does is he points the nation of Israel. Now, in this context, he's speaking not just of the individuals Jacob and Esau anymore, but to the nations that came from them. He points them back and says, God chose you. When you were completely undeserving, when you were completely unnoticed in the world, God set His love on you and He chose you. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I this morning can look back and see that God, even before the foundation of the world, chose us in Him. So God's love in the past, in a word, it's election. Number two, God's love in the present. If I can use one word for this, it's preservation. In a word, we continue to exist. What you have in the rest of verse 3 and going through verse 4 is God comparing the respective circumstances of Judah, or I'm sorry, of Israel, or Jacob, and Esau, or Edom, the nation that came out of Esau. Both of them experienced the judgment of God. Verse 3, I've hated Esau, I've made his mountains a desolation, appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness, So Edom says, verse 4, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people through toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And you can do some very interesting study on some of the Old Testament history background of all this passage. In a word, you had a series of judgments that came upon the nation of Israel culminating in the destruction under John Hyrcanus that, that uh, basically wiped every Edomite off the face of the earth so that no one is alive, even in the first century, but even more today, nobody is alive who can trace their lineage back to Edom. They are wiped off the face of the map. And yet Israel was brought back to their land. And who would you say was more deserving of God's judgment. Israel. Because they sinned against greater light. It's one of the one of the arguments Paul makes in Romans two when he's in the middle of establishing the universal depravity of the human race and he's just gone through all those the pagan Gentiles in Romans one and all that they uh, have done with the um, advocacy of perversion on many different levels and then even the moralist Gentile the first part of chapter 2, who tried to point their fellow, um, fellow people to a higher standard. Even they fell short because they didn't live up to what they knew. But then in the end of chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3 of Romans, Paul goes after the Jew that had every advantage because God had specifically revealed himself to the nation of Israel. He'd sent them prophets. He'd raised up a nation out of Israel. He'd given them the word of God. They had all the advantages that none of their countrymen or, or none of their, uh, their fellow world dwellers, for lack of a better way to put it, had in the Old Testament, and yet they too sinned. And so Paul concludes, whether we're talking about Jew or whether we're talking about Gentile, they've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in those contexts, who has the greater condemnation? 
the ones who sin against the greater light. And yet God preserved them. It isn't just that God had made a choice sometime in eternity past to choose us. Have you ever thought about the fact that God preserved you until the point when you would, in faith, in time, exercise that faith and trust in Christ? I had the privilege in many ways of trusting Christ when I was young. I was eight and a half years old even though I was in an unsaved home. My dad's sister, who had come to faith in Christ about four years before, and basically caught on fire. I mean, if you knew my Aunt Rosalie, she would be the kind that would lead a brigade against hell with a water pistol. (laughs) I mean, she was just that bold in her walk with Christ. And she witnessed to her family. She would invite us up. We kids, the three younger kids, I was the first one, eight and a half years old, who trusted Christ. But I, had, I was in an unsaved home. In fact, my parents were part of a group that advocated a very um, new age type of approach to religions. And I wonder, why didn't I get sucked into that? There were all the reasons for me to get sucked into that, but God preserved me to the point where I would trust in him. And guess what? In the 35 years since then, God has continued to preserve me. Many of you in this room came to trust in Christ at a later age. Some of you, perhaps, after a time of extended wickedness and extended rebellion. Of course, all of you after a time of wickedness and rebellion. But some of you, after a time of of overt rebellion, making choices that would kill some people, and yet God preserved you. The amazing evidence of God's love in the present, God is telling the people in Malachi's day, is not only did I choose you in the past, but I'm preserving you in the present. Even though other people who have sinned less in some ways haven't experienced that preservation. God's love in the present preservation And this, my third one here, is in many ways my favorite one because here we get to Jesus. Number three, God's love in the future is Jesus. I have three words, election in the past, preservation in the present, Jesus in the future. But it's almost misleading to put Jesus in the future in this regard is that Jesus is the basis for the first two. So Jesus underscores election in the past. He underscores preservation in the present. But in this third statement is where Malachi introduces the person who makes all of this possible. And he does so indirectly in this verse, but he's going to unpack this later in the verse. Look with me at verse 5. Your eyes will see this. You will, uh, in other words, what will you see? You will see the fact, verse 4, that God has preserved you and not preserved Edom, is what Malachi is saying. But your eyes will see this, and you will say, and then look at these words at the end of verse 5, the Lord be magnified, and then what are the next words? Beyond the borders of Israel. And then skip down to verse 11 and 12. Particularly verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great, and then what are the next words? Among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. Notice once here in verse 5 and twice in verse 11, you have a statement that God's name is going to be glorified even beyond the borders of Israel. If nothing else, that's where you and I come into play. Because what God is doing here, once again, He's going back to Genesis 12. This is language that comes right out of the Abrahamic covenant, which among other things says that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And how is that going to happen? 
through Jesus. When Jesus Christ came into the world, He took upon human flesh. Matthew's Gospel writes to present Jesus Christ as the King, as the one who has authority. But after Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, resurrected, and then ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, Matthew ends his book with Jesus just before His ascension, making this great claim, all authority has been given to me where? In heaven and on earth. He is not, he is the king of Israel, but he is not just the king of Israel. He is the king of the entire earth. There is a sense in which, there is a very definite sense in which, not more than just a sense, in which God's work through Jesus Christ on the cross provided redemption for people even beyond the nation of Israel. And Malachi introduces this in verse 5 when he reminds the nation of Israel that God is going to be doing things and you're going to see it, and His name is going to be magnified even beyond the nation of Israel. We earlier referenced Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. What's amazing is the context of that passage as well. Because one of the earlier accusations that the people in Malachi's day were raising against God Verse 17 of chapter 2, they said, Where is the God of justice? A claim that you often hear, even in the Bible. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do godly men suffer? Atheists raise it all the time. If there is a God, why is there evil in the world? You know, this, this argument comes up all the time, and it's amazing how God answers that particular objection. Where is the God of justice. And then beginning at verse 1 of Malachi 3 and going through verse 6 is God's answer to the problem of evil. In a word, it's Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to the problem of evil. In both of His comings, you have the first advent of Christ where you have this prophecy about John the Baptist coming in verse 1 of Malachi 3, but then it transitions to the second advent of Christ beginning at verse 2 and going through verse 5. And both of Jesus' comings are God's answer to the problem of evil. In the first coming, Jesus came to redeem us from evil. In the second coming, He comes to exercise His judgment on evil. Either way, the answer is Jesus. And the problem of evil is resolved by either God redeeming us from it, by trusting our trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or by God ultimately executing His judgment. In fact, that is the reason, one of the reasons, why Jesus hasn't returned yet. Because when He comes, all heaven is going to break loose on earth. And God is going to exercise His judgment. That's part of Peter's answer to the mockers who say, where is the promise of His coming? And he says, you, you forget, you people forget in Second Peter 3, Peter is writing, you guys forget that God did intervene one time in history before in judgment, universal judgment, and it was a flood that destroyed the entire known world. And he's, but the next time he intervenes in judgment, it's not going to be with a flood, it's going to be with fire. But right in the middle of that, he makes this amazing statement, God is long-suffering to you. Is Peter writing to, his, to believers at this point? He's long-suffering to you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? One of the reasons is that not everybody who is to be saved has been saved yet. It's amazing. Jesus is coming. And this is what Malachi is putting before the people to look to. He is going to come. And when Jesus Christ finally burst on the scene, 400 years later, it was in the midst of amazing circumstances, amazing situation, amazing coalition of events where God um, made all the circumstances to Jesus' coming when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth His Son. We look back we look back to His first coming. We look back to His finished work on the cross on our behalf. It's His redemptive work on the cross 
that makes the election and the preservation not only possible, but a reality for us. But we are looking ahead. I love how John opens the third chapter of his first epistle. Behold what manner of what? Love. The Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And then in the next verse he says, Beloved, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him we will see him as he is. So Jesus, and of course we've already referenced a number of the passages that highlight that Jesus is the expression of God's love. And this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, because remember, love never starts at our initiative. It's always that he loved us first. We love because he first loved us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He demonstrates His love for us. Jesus Christ is the love of God put on display. It's the love of God perfected. And so Malachi takes the people back to God's election in the past, His preservation in the present, His Son, the manifestation of His Son, the revelation of His Son, the coming of His Son in the future. All as evidence of God's unchanging love. So if you find yourself in your life and in your circumstances in a position where you are tempted to question whether God really loves you, because you're experiencing that trial that you can't see the end of, or you're experiencing that set of circumstances that are utterly overwhelming to you, or just because of the circumstances in which you find yourself in the world scene in which God has placed us for such a time as this, at the beginning of the 21st century, where there are plenty of things that we can look around us in our world scene and find reason to be discouraged, we are tempted to question, tempted to doubt, I would urge you, brothers and sisters, and urge myself, because this is, this is something I desperately need. This is not, I'm not exempting myself, but I need this as much or more than anybody. To remind myself, to preach the gospel to yourself of God's unchanging love. Remember that He chose you in the past. He's preserving you in the present. And one day for us, He's coming again. We can look back to His first coming as the ultimate display redemptively of God's love and look ahead to His coming, which is also an evidence of His love because His love never changes. So respond reverently to God's unchanging love. Jesus, thank You so much for Your love for us. Thank You so much that You demonstrated that love and that You sent Your Son to die on the cross for us that you redeemed us when we were utterly beyond hope and utterly without hope. You sent your Son to die on the cross for us. So Lord, help us to hold on to these great truths. And would you strengthen our lives with them. I pray that you would continue to bless and protect Evangelical Church of Fairport. Thank you for what this church has come to mean to me over these last uh, years that I've had the privilege of knowing your people here, and I do pray that you would continue to permeate this church with your love, that it would that it would overflow into the lives of the people that each of these individuals come in contact with who don't yet know you. Would the love of Christ permeate into the actions and the lives of everybody here that knows you and loves you so that your truth would prevail? that you would draw those whom you have set your love on in the past, that you would draw them to yourself. And we just thank you for all that you're going to do with us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, If you want to follow along on the screen, or you can uh, follow along in your hymnal number four, let's stand as we close, worshiping our great God.
Praise God from whom 